Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 25. If this is your first time here, man, did you pick a day. <laughs> um, but man, I'm excited about what God has for us. And, and I want to show you his goodness in all of this too. It's going to be good. Colossians 3, 18 through 25. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough text. It's, it's a little confusing on the surface, especially as um, all of us here living in this modern, urban setting. It rubs against a lot of our sensibilities, and um, it even sounds offensive. And so I pray that as we uh, dive into your word that is good and that is true and that points us to your goodness, that we would see you in all of your beauty, and all of your glory, that we would see why this is good for us, and that you would be glorified in all of it. Spirit, we ask you to move in ways that I can't, that you would uh, soften our hearts to your word, that you would show us the Father and all of his goodness, that you would show us the Son and all of his goodness, and that um, in everything you would be glorified. In Christ's name. Amen. Now, I read an article this past week that highlighted 50 of the weirdest and most bizarre rules in the entire world. And there were some crazy ones, and I just want to share some of them with you. We're not going to do all 50. Uh, but in Singapore, it's actually illegal to buy, sell, make, or chew chewing gum. Pretty odd rule. Evidently, they had, had to spend like $150,000 to clean chewing gum off the streets. And so they were like, you know what, let's not do that. Let's just ban the stuff. In Poland, it's illegal <laughs> to wear a Winnie the Pooh t-shirt. Because I don't know if you remember this from your childhood days, but Winnie the Pooh wears a shirt and no shorts. And so in Poland, that's too risque. <laughs> you cannot wear a Winnie the Pooh shirt in public Keep that in the bedroom. In France, listen to this one. In France, men are actually required to wear Speedos at the beach or at the pool. They are not allowed to wear shorts. And this makes sense now. Like if you've ever been to a European beach or we honeymoon in the DR and all the Europeans, like the men are wearing Speedos. I'm like, what is the deal with Europe? Like, what is the deal with the Frenchmen? They're required to wear Speedos. And the thought process behind this is that they want to keep their waters clean. And they think men will never wear Speedos anywhere else. So they, we know they're going to be clean. They have to wear them here. This is, I'm not making this up. In Scotland, if you want to ride a cow, you have to be sober. Write that down. Don't forget it, okay? <laughs> Makes sense. In China, if you want to reincarnate, 
You've got to get the government's permission, okay? Now, even if reincarnation was real, how in the world are they going to enforce that? Like, how did, how did, this is communism. It makes no sense at all. In Alabama, this is great because it is a foreign country. In Alabama, you are not allowed to wear a fake mustache to church, okay? Evidently, people were doing this and it was making people laugh and it was distracting from the sermon. So they put it in law, do not wear fake mustaches to church. This is the last one, and this one is shocking to me. This is the most shocking of them all. In Japan, it is against the rules to be overweight. And so every single year, every single person has to go to the doctor, and they have to have their waist measured. Men, if you are over 33.5, you get fined. Women, if you are over 35.4, you get fined. This is a law right now. Isn't that crazy? Now, I look at some of these rules, and there's 50 of them, and if you want the link to the article, I'll send you the rest. I think there are some really fascinating cultures out there, and there are some really fascinating and interesting countries out there that I don't understand, especially Alabama. And they have some weird and bizarre rules that would never work here in Charlotte. Our cultures are too different, our situations are too different, our worldviews, our values are too different. And I actually think, man, it's kind of good that we're separated by some water. It's good that we got the Mississippi in between us, right? <laughs> and the Atlantic, of course. I like chewing gum. I like not having to check this thing every year because I like hamburgers. I like wearing shorts at the beach, and so do you for me. <laughs> they can keep their rules over there. They're just too bizarre. And then I open up my Bible and I turn to Colossians 3 and I see this heading, Rules for Christian Households. And I'm not going to lie, at first glance, some of it looks just as bizarre and just as foreign as some of those rules I just read. Wives, submit to your husbands? Are you kidding me? That would never work in Charlotte. We're trying to destroy the patriarchy. We're not trying to reinforce it, right? Husbands, love your wives? Well, duh. I mean, that's an easy one. Wives, submit to your husbands. Just love your wife. Like, he wouldn't have married the girl if he didn't love the girl. That's like the easiest no-brainer in the world. Husbands, love your wives. Slaves, obey your masters. And in everything, what in the world is going on here? And so at first glance, these look like some of the strangest and most bizarre rules we've ever seen, and then we, we immediately think, man, that would never work here in Charlotte. Our cultures are too different. Our situations are too different. Our worldviews, our values are too different. I think it's actually a little bit good that we're separated by some water. It, it's good that we're separated by 2,000 years of science and progress and advancement and liberation and human rights. See, these rules really rub up against our modern sensibilities, don't they? I mean, you did not come to church today thinking that the first thing I was going to read out of the Bible was wives submit to husbands. That's one of the most offensive things you could say in our culture right now. All kinds of red flags. And so the big question is, what in the world are we supposed to do with these rules like, were they just for the first century Jewish Greco-Roman culture, don't really apply to us anymore? Or 
you know, do some of them apply to us and others not? Or are we just supposed to take some principles out of here and apply them in our own way, whatever that looks like, whatever that means? What in the world are we supposed to do with these rules for Christian households? And then the next really big question that we have to answer is, if any of them are for us today, how in the world are they actually good? Why would this be desirable for us? You see, every time God gives a rule, and this is every single rule that God has ever given us, every single time it's always for his glory and it's always for our good, every single time. And so when God says, do this, he knows that if we do it, it will lead to life and life to the fullest. And when he says, don't do this, he says it because he knows that he's protecting us from something that will keep us from life and life to the fullest. Okay, so if any of these rules are for us, how in the world do they produce homes that bring joy and peace and love, not just to us, but to everyone else around us, to society as a whole? Those are two really big questions, are they not? You're going to have to talk to me today. I feel like I'm dying up here. <laughs> I love you. Don't stop. Follow his example. Okay, these are the two questions. What are we supposed to do with these rules and why are they good for us? To answer the first question, we've got to do some history. There are two things that we really need to understand about the Christians that Paul is writing to 2,000 years ago. Because if we don't understand what's going on in their context, we're going to totally miss what it means for ours today. And so the first thing we have to understand about this context is that in their culture, they already had rules for the home. Um, this kind of writing, this kind of teaching was really popular during the day. Household codes were a part of their ethics um, and, and they were under the, the title household management. And so you've heard of Aristotle. He's one of the leading Greek thinkers of the time. He's actually one of the leading thinkers to this day. Like a lot of our philosophy goes back to Aristotle. So Aristotle, when he was coming up with his ethics, he looked at the home and he came up with this category called household management. And then he broke that up into three categories, husbands and wives, fathers and children, and slaves and masters. And let me just tell you, his, his vision of this was not great. The ancient world's vision for household rules was really, really not great. Wives had no rights. Men and women were not equal. And so some of the ways that this played out were in the ethics, and you can look this up. I mean, this is common knowledge, but in case you didn't study Aristotle this past week, um, you, you, wives could not divorce their husbands ever, but husbands could divorce their wives on a whim whenever they wanted. Wives had to be faithful to their marriage. Husbands could have as many mistresses of any gender that they wanted and society would not frown on them whatsoever. In fact, in a lot of Greek households, women weren't even allowed to eat with their husbands. They came when they were summoned and then they left. They had no rights whatsoever. They were like property and their husbands owned them. Men ruled, women obeyed. Same with children, same with slaves. These were the household rules of the Greco-Roman world. And then guys like Philo came along and Josephus came along and they took what Aristotle created and they just applied it to Jewish culture. This was what was going on during the first century. And it's important that we understand this because this kind of teaching was in the air. Everyone's writing about it. Everyone's talking about it. Household rules were a major topic of conversation. 
And they still are today as well. We just don't have it in our ethics. We don't even have ethics. We pretend like we don't have ethics, but then everyone's really, really moral on social media. And we're like calling out the evil people, but like we have no ethics for some reason. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so listen, this is what's happening. When this brand new community of Christ followers just appears out of nowhere, the biggest question, or one of the biggest questions is, how are their homes going to look any different from the rest of ours? Or are they going to look different? I mean, are they just going to be the same? It's a major topic of conversation. What difference is it going to make if Christ is above all in the home? Are their relationships going to differ? What's going to shift? And this is important for us to understand because um, as you look at Colossians as a whole, Paul is not shifting from the main point of this letter. If you haven't been here the whole time, Colossians is all about Jesus. It's all about his supremacy and his sufficiency and his excellency. And so for two and a half chapters, that's all that the Apostle Paul has been talking about. And he's not just shifting now and talking about arbitrary rules for households. He's actually building on his argument. He's saying, listen, if Christ is sufficient and if Christ is supreme and he is above all, that means he's going to be above all in your homes too. And this is what that's going to look like. He's going to get into every nook and cranny of your life, even your most intimate relationships. I'm going to go ahead and give you a spoiler. He is going to flip everything that Aristotle taught upside down. He's going to flip everything that Philo and Josephus and all the others taught upside down. This brand new community is going to bring in a brand new culture of liberation, equality, and oneness. That's the spoiler. That's the first thing we need to understand. But the second thing that we need to understand is that because of the gospel and because of this newfound liberation and newfound equality and newfound oneness, there was tons of confusion as to what the home was even supposed to look like anymore. Galatians 3.28 literally says, and I think I have this, yes I do. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. In the passage immediately preceding the, these rules in Colossians, Colossians 3.11, here there's not Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so there's this incredible liberation. There's this incredible equality and oneness that comes with the gospel. Women are not property anymore. They have equal rights in the kingdom of God. So these brand new Christians, are, now that they're like, wow, we're, this is incredible. This is amazing. This is an epiphany. The world has never seen anything like this. But they're struggling to figure out what this means. Are all the distinctions gone? Has everything been eradicated? So God says we're a new creation. We just saw that a couple weeks ago. Does that mean there's no such thing as husbands and wives anymore? Like, does that mean there's no such thing as parents and children? W what about... Slaves, what about bond servants? 70% of the Roman Empire were bond servants. So, what does that mean? Are all the distinctions gone? So, there's so much confusion. And some of the Christians in Colossae, especially, had adopted this asceticism an asceticism that basically avoided sex altogether, even in marriage. In their minds, in their baby Christian thinking, they thought that setting their minds on the things that were above meant abandoning and hating everything down below. 
just neglecting marriage, neglecting the bed in marriage, forgetting about parenting and all of their earthly duties because in their minds, Christ is coming back. Like, let's just buckle up, get ready. And so the Apostle Paul is writing these rules not just to start a cultural revolution, which he's going to do, but he's writing them to give the people of God some much-needed clarity and some much-needed correction about what it actually means to be liberated and equal and one and still thrive and flourish in our relationships. That's what this is. And what we're going to see is that God's plan for marriage and God's plan for the family didn't change with the dawning of the church. Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is still there. I love how one scholar put it. The new family of God gave believers their fundamental identity. But the spiritual family didn't eliminate the continuing significance of the physical family and the relations appropriate to its smooth functioning. And so this text, like the other household codes, is best seen as giving guidance for the way Christians are to bring all of life under the lordship of Christ. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at these rules. We're going to look at husbands and wives, um, fathers and parents and children. And actually, this isn't actually talking about slavery. We'll talk about that in three weeks, but we're going to talk about masters and workers. Today... We're going to start with husbands and wives. What does it look like for Christ to be above all in the home? Are you still with me? All right. Look back at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Okay, now let's be honest. There is not a lot there. And yet... There is a lot there. <laughs> it's two short sentences with no context, no explanation, and yet they are jam-packed with massive ideas and massive implications. So what are we supposed to take from these commands? I think the, the best way to read and interpret and explain a, a text like that is with Scripture. And this is a Bible study tool as well. If you're new to the Bible, one of the best ways to study the Bible is when you come to a tough passage that doesn't have a lot of qualifiers and doesn't have a lot of explanation, you go to other passages that commentate on it, that explain it. And so there's another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to another church, neighboring city, almost the exact same situation. It's a city called Ephesus. It's a letter called Ephesians. And it also has a household code, household code, and it explains it way more. So I'm going to read that and we'll get some clarity as we do so. Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's talking to everyone, by the way. Everyone submit to everyone in the family of God out of reverence to Christ. Then he says, wives, in particular, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife 
loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's quoting Genesis. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, this passage is really, really helpful because before we can grasp what our roles and responsibilities are as husbands and wives, we've got to know what God is trying to accomplish through the institution of marriage. What is the goal of marriage? Why did God design it in the first place? Why did he create it? Why did he invent it? If we don't get that, we won't get the roles. And so this is the first thing I want you to see. When Christ is above all in our marriages, his purpose for marriage will be our purpose as well. Okay, so let me ask you this big question. What do you think Christ's purpose for marriage is? What's the goal? Why would he invent it? I read a lot of leading thinkers this past week. Let me give you some of their ideas and see see what you think. Marriage is more than anything else the expression of love. The essence of marriage is not breeding or even romantic love, but a unique and profound friendship. Now, marriage is seen by most people as love, intimacy, and happiness. The real nature of marriage is commitment between two people to take on special obligations to one another. That sounds fun. (laughs) And then finally, a marriage is a private arrangement between parties committed to love. These are our leading thinkers. These are our authors and our philosophers and our voices. And this is what I want you to see. If any one of those visions is true, then the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives laid out for us in the New Testament make no sense whatsoever. In fact, they're going to be in direct conflict to any one of those visions. So what's God's vision of marriage? Look back at Ephesians 5, verse 31, 32. Therefore, again quoting Genesis, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Okay, I want you to see this. The purpose of marriage isn't just about becoming one with another person and it's not just about starting a family and having a bunch of kids and it's not even just about mutual love and intimacy. At its core, write this down. The purpose of marriage is to point people to Jesus from the very beginning. Genesis 1. At its core, the mystery of marriage is that it's about Christ and his church. It's a picture of the gospel. And so the conversation about marriage is really a conversation about God himself. 
1 John 4, 12 says, no one has ever seen God. But when you love like God, when you love sacrificially and selflessly and unconditionally, God will be seen in you. And remember a couple of weeks ago, what we saw was that um, when we put on compassion and we put on kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness and most importantly, love, we point people to Jesus. And what Paul is saying now is there isn't a greater institution in the world with a greater opportunity in the world for you to do that than in marriage. And so the profound mystery of our marriages is that they enable us to put God on display, to make his love known to the world around us. That's what marriage is about. That's the purpose. That's why it was invented in, in Genesis 1, and that's why it doesn't exist in heaven. Because we're going to be in his presence and we're not going to need an analogy. And we're not going to need an illustration. And we're not going to need a demonstration. He's just going to be there. But until then, the world has us. I read a story this past week about an argument that broke out in the UK between the Foreign Office and the Treasury. And I love this because I think it's perfect for this conversation. The argument was about which British ambassadors got to have Rolls Royces. <laughs> and the, the Department of the Foreign Office was like, everyone should get them, you know? And the Department of the Treasury was like, only DC, Moscow, and Paris. Okay, we gotta save the money here. It's really interesting though, because the Foreign Office wanted many of their ambassadors to have one of these Rolls Royces as possible. And their argument was this. They said, listen, most of the people living in all of these cities all over the world have never been to the United Kingdom and they're never gonna go. They have no idea what they're like. But listen, if they see our people driving a car like that, they might not know anything about the UK, but they might say, wow, that must be a cool place because look at the kind of cars they make. We need to get everyone in a car like that so everyone around the world will think great things about our country. Guys, that's what marriage was designed to do. That's marriage. Christ, in his infinite wisdom, is saying men and women are going to say to themselves, I've never seen God. And sometimes I look at the world and I see all this evil and I see all this brokenness and I wonder, how, how, how could God be good? How could God be loving? Maybe he's not even there, but... If he could make a man and a woman come together and love each other and serve each other and care for each other despite their differences, even forgive each other when they sin against each other, man, he must be good. How could he do that? Marriage is God's Rolls Royce pointing the world to his love and to his goodness. And this is the purpose of marriage, to mirror the love of Christ to a world that desperately needs to experience it. Yes, it's about having kids. Yes, it's about being more like Jesus. Yes, it's about intimacy. Yes, it's about joy and all of those love and romance things. Yes, 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 and amen. But... First and foremost, it's about Jesus and his gospel. Now, how does this happen? That leads to the second principle. 
if Christ is above all in our marriages, his pursuit of us will direct our pursuit of each other. Let me say that again. If Christ is above all in our marriages, and it's all about him, then the way he pursues us will direct the way we pursue each other. That means our specific roles in marriage and our pursuit of each other in marriage were intentionally designed to point the world to Jesus. So what does this look like for wives? Let's go to the fun stuff first. Verse 18, this is where it starts. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now before I can tell you what this means and why this is good, let me tell you what this does not mean, okay? <laughs> I want to tell you what this does not mean because I guarantee you that what you are thinking right now is what I'm about to tell you it is not, okay? First, this does not mean women should submit to men. And all God's people said, Genesis 1 says that God makes man and woman in his image as equals. We could just pack it up and go home, right? Galatians 3, I already read it. There is no longer male nor female in the sight of God, but all are one in Christ. Submission is not giving up your value. Submission is not giving up your worth. It's not giving up your dignity. It's not giving up your identity. You are an image bearer of Christ and you are not called to submit to men in general. So if you're a big boss lady and you're really good at your job and you run a company and you've got male subordinates, keep at it. Great. Because this passage does not say women should submit to men. It's not about your worth as a woman. It's about your role as a wife, but more on that in a minute. Second, this text does not say wives, I'm sorry, this text does say, <laughs> this text says wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. There's a qualifier there. This means this is not a command to blindly obey your husband. Especially, if he's disobeying the Lord. Come on now. <laughs> Guys, and, and I want you to hear me because I know that um, this gets abused a lot. This is not a command to put up with abuse. Emotional abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. None of those things are fitting to the Lord. Ever. Wives, you are not commanded to submit to your husbands in that. Ever. In fact, the very next statement, which we're going to get to husbands in a minute, don't worry. But it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So that's fitting to the Lord. So if they're being harsh with you, they're not being fitting to the Lord. Submission does not mean giving up your safety and putting up with an evil and abusive man. If you're in a situation like that right now, talk to me after the service and we will help you. Third, I want you to understand that this has nothing to do with who does the cooking and cleaning and who does the chores 
who does the laundry. Submission does not equal servitude. In fact, we're going to see this. I keep hinting to the men because we're going to get to the men and we're going to spend a ton of time on the men. Don't you worry. But men are commanded to love our wives like Christ loves the church, and that means humbly serving. Okay? So if the command to submit isn't about value, and it isn't about blind obedience, and it isn't about cooking and cleaning, then what's it about, and how in the world does it point to Christ? Well, ultimately, what this word means is that you give one man, your husband, that you choose permission to lead. In fact, this word literally means to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of someone else. It's used all throughout Greek uh, literature and the Greek New Testament. It's, it's used to describe all of us submitting to the government, which I was really convicted about this past week because I don't like submitting to the government, especially on the road when I'm driving. I have a really hard time with having a submissive attitude about that. Okay? Um, it's used to describe everyone in the church submitting to each other. We voluntarily place ourselves under the authority of each other in mutual discipleship, which means if you see me sin, you can come and confront me on it. And if I don't respond well, you get to say, hey, you can't be a pastor. I'm not above you. I have to submit to you as you submit to me. And then also everyone in the church is, is called to submit under the authority of, of their elders in the church. And this word is used all the time, and it's always a choice. It's always voluntary, and it's always joyful. In this case, it means to the man that you choose to marry. It's not about giving up your worth. It's about accepting a new role. It's not about doing housework. It's about showing honor. It's not about giving up your safety. Listen to this. It's about letting go of the reins. And I think one of the best ways to think about this is, is sailing ships out on the open sea. And I'm going to try to explain this the best way I can, and then we're going to get to Jesus because this is good news, okay? Um, picture Pirates of the Caribbean right now. Okay, just imagine that. Um, in the ancient world, a woman would be the captain of her ship, and she'd be sailing out on the open sea, wheel in hand. She got that scope out. She's looking for the land, and she is the captain of that thing, and she is charting her own course, and it's incredible. And in the ancient world, according to Aristotle, a man who's captaining his own ship would speed up. He'd get in front of that lady's ship. He'd get a rope out with a big old hook on it, and he'd throw it back on that boat, and he'd be like, you're mine now. This is my property. Come up here whenever I want you, and I'm going to send you back whenever I'm, I'm bored with you. And if I get sick of you, and I get so sick of you, or for any reason whatsoever, I'm just going to cut this rope off, and I'm going to leave you alone. That's the ancient vision of marriage. The modern vision of marriage is woman sailing her ship, open sea, the future is hers, right? Charting her own course, it's incredible. And then this guy pulls up next to her. He's like, what's up, girl? And, and he's like, he's trying to impress her. And he's like, I got this gold telescope, check that, I'm, I got some money. Uh, and he's like cracking jokes, he's trying to make her laugh, look at my dreadlocks, and she's like, okay, I see you, I see you. And she's like, let's do this together. And so she gets the rope out, and she throws it over, and it's kind of like two ships side by side, and it's connected to a rope, and, you know, she might lead out a little bit over here, and he's like, hold, hold up, hold up, and he's like, I got to lead over here, and it's like a give and take, it's a push and pull, and then in, in our culture's vision, if there's too much pull, and, and maybe your direction shifts a little bit, and your direction shifts a little bit, what do you talk about? 
talking about growing apart, right? And so in, in our culture, what we say in our house rules is you, you get the machete out, you get your sword out, and you just cut the rope. Say, I'll see you. You do you, I'll do me. That's the modern vision. Christ's vision of marriage is totally different from the ancient vision, and it's totally different from the modern vision, because in his vision, there is no rope to attach or cut, because there aren't two ships. In Christ's vision, the woman looks over at this captain, and he's doing all the jokes, and he's flashing, he's trying to woo her in every, every way possible, and, and she's like, you know what, I like the direction he's going in. He actually follows Jesus. I think I could spend my life with a guy like that. And she jumps off her ship and she becomes his helper, his first mate. And she says, I'm willfully, voluntarily, joyfully saying, I'm with you on this one. Now listen, listen. I need to be clear because I know some of you are still hearing me wrong. And I know this is a long sermon. You know what? If you got to leave, you got to leave. But we're barely scratching the surface here. This has nothing to do with career. This has nothing to do with chores. This has nothing to do with every little decision that you make as a couple about, you know, what cars you drive and what color your curtains are and what the couches are and all this kind of stuff. Um, we're going to see in a minute that if a husband is loving and leading like Christ, he's going to be leading by sacrificing and serving. Okay. So in other words, when Caroline jumped onto my ship, I didn't get a servant. I got someone to serve. That's what happened the moment she jumped on my ship. I didn't realize that in the moment. <laughs> if only I had known. And so I'm like, okay. What are the jobs that you like the least? Well, she hates the bathroom. She hates the dishes. So guess what I do <laughs> at our house? Do the bathrooms. It is my joy to love her like Christ loves me and to serve her. I tried to do laundry one time. I'm not allowed to do it anymore. <laughs> I did it wrong. I just do my own laundry now because it doesn't matter if I do mine wrong. I think it's right. We make decisions together with much discussion. She helps me so much in making decisions because I'm an activator. Everything's a green light, and I just go, go, go. And if problems arise, I'm like the master builder along the way. Like, we're going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out. I have no idea what we're doing, but we're going. And we just fail forward, and she's like, let's slow down. Let's ask some questions here. Have you thought through this? Have you thought through that? I'm like, no, nah, I would have never thought of that. Wow. You're really good at this thing. We make these decisions together with a lot of discussion. The only time I ever say, listen, I, I've got a pull rank here, is when we're, we're making a decision and we aren't on the same page. But I am convinced that it's for her good for us to go in this direction, that God is calling us as a family to go in a direction. I'm saying, listen, you got to trust me, babe, because I'm the one who's responsible to God. I can't abdicate. I can't, I can't let go of this role that he's given me. And so I think about planting a church, right? Scary. 
kind of a crazy decision. It's like starting a business, but you don't have a product. You're just trying to tell people about Jesus. <laughs> um, we left, we left a, a wonderful situation. So comfortable, so easy. Friends, family, we could walk to three parks. I could ride my bike to the church. Great salary. It was incredible. I was like, Caroline, I think we're moving. We're going to give up all of this. Okay, let me just tell you, God did not call her to be a church planter. God called me to be a church planter. And that was a really difficult situation. And, and it's not that she didn't want to do it. It's not that she wasn't excited about it, but she was scared. And she was nervous. I said, listen, I know God's calling us to do this, and I don't know how, but it's going to be good. you got to trust me. Let's do it together. And she does. She did it. She's the greatest helper in the world. We would have we failed four years ago if I didn't have her, because she's always asking the good questions. You know what I mean? The only time you pull rank is when you're certain it's for your wife's good. If you're in an argument... And you're ever just like, you know what? I'm the husband. I get to make the decision. You've already lost. (laughs) More on that in a minute. Submission is not servitude. It's letting go of the reins and voluntarily placing yourself under the humble servant leadership of your husband. And so then the big question becomes, how in the world does that point to Jesus and the gospel? Because that's what it's all about. This is the unique role given to the wife to point to a unique quality of Jesus and a unique component of the gospel. So the truth is that when wives submit to their husbands, they're pointing to Jesus in a unique way. And do you know what that way is? It's to his submission. This word that's used, submit, for wives, is the same exact word that's used for Jesus. To describe how he acted with his father. That he willingly, voluntarily, and joyfully submitted to his father. Became a human being. And became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Was Jesus equal to the father? Yes. Was Jesus one with the father? Yes. He was, and yet he submitted his will to the Father so that he could carry out the greatest rescue mission ever known to man. So, wives, when you submit to your husbands, you're pointing to him. And that's the purpose of marriage, to make him look as good as he actually is. When you voluntarily, willfully, joyfully submit to your husbands, you are showing the world what Jesus did when he submitted to his father. You are a constant illustration of what he was doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's your role. The world needs to see that. Okay, so what does this mean for husbands? I am going to speed it up, but we're not going to go easy on the husbands. Don't you worry. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Ephesians 5 goes into much greater detail, so let's look at it, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, 
Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. So how are husbands supposed to pursue their wives like Christ? By laying our lives down for you. Giving ourselves up for you. She's going to model submission. You're going to model sacrifice. I'm just going to say, sacrifice is a lot harder. And I'm not downplaying submission because I've already told you how hard it is for me to submit to our government. (laughs) But what I am saying is, wives, you're pointing back to Gethsemane and that was brutal. Husbands, you're pointing back to Calvary. If you're a husband and you don't feel the pain of crucifixion every day, you're doing it wrong. It's all about Jesus. Wives point to the garden. Husbands point to the cross. Each role, each responsibility points to to this distinct and beautiful aspect of the gospel. Without both, we wouldn't have a full picture of what's going on in Christ. It's all about him. You know what's so amazing about this? And we're going to keep talking about men, don't worry. You know what's so amazing about this? It's the fact that when we do this, both of these things, both of us thrive. And both of us flourish. Our marriage thrives and grows and deepens. And we have this incredible sense that things are the way that they should be. See, marriage is designed to bring God glory first and foremost. But it's also designed to bring us incredible blessing as well. And again, just to go back to the beginning, when God gives a rule, it's always for your good. Every time God gives a command, it's to lead to Zoe, life and life to the fullest. And I just want you to think about it for a minute with me here. Wives, how would you feel if your husbands loved you like Christ loved the church? Husbands, how would you feel if your wives respected you and submitted to you like Christ did with his father? How how would it look in your marriage if both of you did that together? Oh man, that's a Rolls Royce. That's incredible. How did God do that? I want want you to think about husbands, though, because Paul lays out some really specific ways that we do that. And and I'm going to, man, we're going to fly through this. I know I'm going long. Spiritually and physically, husbands, for you to love your wife like Christ and wives, how incredible would this be if your husbands loved you like this? Would you be on board with this? Spiritually, he takes the lead in helping you become more like Jesus. Ephesians 5.26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. What would it look like, husbands, if you led out in that for your wife? I love how Jan Johnson put it in the invitation to a Jesus life. She said, Jesus treasures the self we keep hidden and wants to transform that self into the person we'd love to be. 
Which is another way of saying Jesus sees what you hide from everyone else and he loves you. He doesn't judge you. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't run from you. He doesn't hold it over your head. He treasures you right where you are. And at the same time, he loves you so much that he's going to help you grow and develop into the person that you always wanted to be. He's going to present you splendid without wrinkle or spot in all your glory. That's incredible. Husbands, what if you love your wives like this? Not harshly, but graciously. Take responsibility for her sins. We see what's hidden. We see the blemishes. We see, well, I'm not going to go into detail. <laughs> Pre-makeup, let's call it, call it that. We see our wives. I'm, my wife is beautiful. That was not a slight on Caroline. I'm just saying, we see our wives in a way that the world will never see with all the blemishes. What would it look like for us to treasure our wives in all of their blemishes? Not pointing out harshly, not condemning, not judging, just saying, I love you right where you are. And then we just washed them in the word. We washed them in prayer. We did everything we could to say, listen, I love you just the way you are, but Jesus is further down that way. Let me help you get there, and I'm going to get there with you. That's what leadership looks like in the home. It's first and foremost spiritually, but then also it's physically. We love our wives like our own bodies. <laughs> what a fascinating text in God's inspired word. He who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now listen, guys, you might not be an expert on much. And you might not know a lot about a lot of things. You might not watch the news. You might not be all up on social media. You have no idea what's going on in the world today. But I can tell you one thing's absolutely certain, and that's the fact that you are an expert on you. You know you really well. When Paul says no one ever hated themselves, but you feed and you care for your body, he's basically saying, you know how to treat yourself. When you're thirsty, you know where to get a drink. And you know what you like to drink, and so you're going to drink what you like to drink. When you're hungry, you eat what you want to eat, but you think tastes good. When I go to lunch at Harris Teeter, there are two options, okay? <laughs> there are two options. It's a massive store with endless options but I, I know I'm not getting a salad. I'm not getting fresh fruit. I'm not getting boxed up sushi. I'm not getting boxed up chicken salad. How long has it even been sitting out? Is that sanitary? Is that healthy? I'm either getting a turkey sub or I'm getting a slice of pizza. Because I know what I like. Thank you. There you go. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands, live with your wives with knowledge, which is another way of saying, husbands, live with your wives in understanding, which means become that kind of expert about your wife. You know you. You're an expert on you. What about your wife? 
Love her as much as you love your own body. Know her as much as you know yourself. You might say, well, that's too hard. It's too much work. My wife's too complex a creature to actually become an expert on. I don't think I'll ever be able to know her like I know myself. Men are very simple creatures. I'm just not going to lie here, okay? We're very simple creatures. We've got three basic needs. You meet those needs, we're good. Women are infinitely complex, <laughs> infinitely complex. And it will take a lifetime for me to learn my wife and become an expert on my wife. But here's the thing. We study what's important to us. We learn what's important to us. We know what's important. Some of y'all are really, really, really into fantasy football. Too much so. Okay. It's like you're trying to pass the bar or something, studying these stats. What am I, who am I going to pick today? You listen to the podcast, you read the articles, memorizing everything. You are an expert on fantasy football because it's important to you. Some of you care a lot about money, right? You study the market, you study investments, opportunities. You become an expert in your finances. It is complicated, it is complex, but you care about it. And so you study it. Some of you are really into your lawns. And this is me. And we spend hours watching YouTube videos and reading articles. I was at Home Depot looking at grass seed for 30 minutes on Friday, literally walking up and down the aisle for 30 minutes, reading the back of every single bag, trying to figure out what I was going to do because I care about my lawn. Guys, it doesn't matter what you're interested in. It might be how to make the best cup of craft coffee, Caleb, right here. It might be how to hit a straight golf ball. I mean, how many hours do some of you spend on that? It might be how to get a chiseled six-pack. Six I got two guys in mind right now in this room. There are two of you in this room that have a six-pack. <laughs> well done. <laughs> we study what's important to us. That's the point. This is what I want you to see. If we don't study our wives like that, if we don't put the same kind of time and energy and effort into learning them, like we do all of those other things, do you know what we're telling them? That they aren't as important to us as all of those other things. When Paul says, love your wife like you love your own body, he's saying, put your wife at the top of your list at what is important to you. She gets a no-compete clause in your life. Yeah, you got a lot of stupid hobbies. You got some dumb friends. You got some good friends. We all keep at least one dumb friend around that to make ourselves feel better. Your wife should never feel like she's competing with any of them. She should know that you love her and you value her and you treasure her above all of those other things. That's what Paul's saying. Wives, would you like that? Of course you would. Do you know why? God never gives a rule that doesn't lead to your good. Never. Finally, and I'm going to close now. But there's one more thing, because I know this raises a lot of questions. I think one of the biggest questions that I need to address before we close, it flows out of all of this. 
Husbands might ask, well, what if my wife doesn't lovingly submit to my leadership? Should I still love her sacrificially? And wives say, well, what if my husband isn't a great leader? And what if he isn't actually serving me like Christ serves the church? Should I still submit to his leadership? How far are we supposed to take this? What happens if it's one-sided? What happens if I'm doing all the sacrificing? I'm just going to get walked all over. Let me just encourage you with this. It's going to happen both ways at one point in time in your marriage, at least once. In fact, I think about our marriage. We, we were very open about this. Every time we've ever come to a place where we just can't stand each other and we're frustrated with each other and we feel bitter, we feel some resentment, every single time it's because we're, we're weighing who's doing more than the other. I'm I just, I just doing so much sacrificing. Where's the respect? I feel like you don't respect me. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all this to help you, but where's the love? Where's the affection? And, and, and we start weighing scales, right? And, and whenever we do that every single time, it just leads to frustration, bitterness, and resentment. It's a cycle. He didn't meet my needs, so I'm not going to meet his needs. And I say, she didn't meet my needs, so I'm not going to meet her needs. That's not what God designed. There was a time early on in our marriage where we had gotten to this point, and, and, and we had gotten to the point where, you know, we, we were just defeated. We were like in a point of despair. We were like, we don't even know how to get out of this cycle. And, and I'll never forget, you know what we did? We just, we were just like, well, we don't know the answer. We have no idea what we're going to do, so let's just pray. And so we started praying, and, and we didn't pray for each other. It was the Spirit of God working in our hearts. As I started praying and as she started praying, it was like he was opening our eyes to where we were not fulfilling our roles. So I started praying and immediately realized how selfish I was and immediately realized how arrogant I was and immediately realized how harsh I was. And she started realizing things too. By the end of the prayer, it was like, wow, I love you again. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> And, and so now, whenever we get into one of those cycles again, we're like, oh, we're doing it again. I'm doing it again. I'm focusing on you and not on me. How far are we supposed to take this? Guys, listen. A marriage that has Christ ruling over it is not contractual. It is covenantal. That's important. Listen to this. A contract says, if you do this, then I'll do this. A contract says, if you submit to me, then I'll love you. A contract says, if you're a really great husband, then I'll follow you. Contracts are always conditional, but that's not the gospel. The gospel never says, if, then. The gospel always says, even if. Because the gospel is not a contract. The gospel is a covenant. Listen, Christ never looks at you and says, if, then. And that is good news. If you clean yourself up, then I'll love you. If you stop being a lazy bum, then I'll die for you. If you start obeying all of my commands, then I'll welcome you into my family. No, his love is loyal. His love is faithful. His love takes the initiative. It takes the responsibility and it bears all of our sins on his shoulders. It does not hinge on our behavior. 
It always says, even if, even if you fail, I'll still love you. Even if you wander, I'll still pursue you. Even if you trample all over me, I'll still go to the cross for you because my love is unconditional, my grace is relentless, and my mercy will never run out. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is covenantal. And so if you ask how far should I take this, I say take it all the way to Gethsemane. How far should I take this? Take it all the way to the cross. That is how far. Because again, the purpose of marriage is to point people to him. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, and I'll close with this. Love is not blind. That is the last thing it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. A marriage that's ruled by Christ is a marriage that's driven by a Christ-centered purpose and a marriage that's guided by a Christ-centered pursuit. So husbands, love your wives like Christ, and wives, submit to your husbands like Christ for his glory and for your good. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and respond in prayer.